Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And together, we're going to explore engaging teachers with research. But first, Chris, what you reading for? Hey, what you reading for? So this week I went back to a bit of a classic and um, it's in fact, it's even more of a classic because it's a book called Questioning the Author by uh, Beck, McCowan, Kukin and Hamilton. And there is a more recent version, which is kind of Questioning the Author 15 years on. And I seem to have misplaced this or left it somewhere. So I'm left with the original version that I picked up for two or three quid on eBay a while back, but it is still a really excellent read. It is, in effect, uh, an, a description of how to teach reading comprehension in a way that guides pupils through a text. So it isn't read and then reflect. It isn't just asking questions after the fact. It is uh, modelling the building of comprehension process as it's happening through what they describe as queries. Now, as with any approach to the teaching of comprehension, it isn't meant to be interpreted, I don't think, as a recipe, or if it is meant to be interpreted as a recipe, I don't think that's something you need to do in order to get real value from this book. It's a really snappy read. I gamble you can pick it up, as I did, for two or three quid off eBay, the original version at least. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in there. I think a lot of reading teachers in, in any country can learn a great deal from it so yeah it comes highly recommended from me at least uh, what about you kieran what are you reading for i read a really interesting blog post this week um, and i immediately bookmarked it online it's called improving the exit ticket and it's by blake harvard who is the teacher from alabama who writes really well about his practice and different ideas from cognitive science and things and it's both a quick read, but also a thought-provoking read. And so he also, or he essentially outlines some ways in which we might consider exit tickets and their effective use in, in class. And so, you know, exit tickets are something that I've seen, for instance, Matt and his teachers do really well at STEP. It's something I think we, you know, I think I mentioned in the last episode about them, you know, using those exit tickets for assessment. So... It just happened that this came up on my feed this week and that, well, we're checking out. Yeah, this week, in a slight change to the format, I'm going to be asking questions of you, trying to tap into your experience, your expertise in the area of supporting teachers to engage with research. And it might sound like a really obvious question, but I think a good place to start is with this. Why is it important do you think for teachers to engage with research i think this episode comes with a caveat in that up until about six o'clock this evening it felt as if this was going to be an unseen question episode <laughs> yeah. but then some questions did come through so i haven't i mean to be honest i don't really like prepping for things because i end up reading from lists i remember prepping for craig barton's tips for teachers podcast and i felt like I'd drawn back to my bullet points because I'd done a lot of prep for that interview. You know, you want to go well and stuff. But, you know, one of the things that when I'm reading about teachers' habits that jumps out all the time is the idea that 
you've got this roughly 25% of teachers who engage with reading other than pamphlets about their practice. And that, and that staggers me because as someone who's always been interested in reading, someone who's been interested in personal and professional development, I don't understand why you wouldn't. So I think it's, it's probably better to clarify that early because when I approach this, I'm thinking that it's an inherently good thing that teachers engage with research because we're professionals, because our roles are extremely complex. You know, I mean, we've managed to do over 130 episodes on teaching primary education, and we haven't really scratched the surface of the subject at all. You know, the plan is to go for a thousand episodes, thousand plus. And even then, I'm not convinced we'll get to where we really hope to. So I think that complexity suggests that it's not something we can pick up naturally. We need effective instruction from others. We need guidance about what to read. And I think it's the combination of reading from academics, teachers who are more expert than ourselves, applying that in practice, perhaps being coached. You know, I have no one preferred model of coaching, but I do think that support from more experienced teachers is essential. And it's only really that mix that allows us to get some sort of handle on what is essentially one of the most complex jobs you could possibly hope to engage with. Um, so, so I think it's, it's an important part of that. And my hope is that the, by talking about our reading at the start of most episodes, we're starting to, I don't know, I, I mean, it's probably giving ourselves too much credit, but it, normalizing conversations, and, and we'll come to that in a bit. But I think it's important because of the expectations on teachers, the expectations of the role, and what's necessary to get really good at it. Because even after 15, 16 years, I still feel like there's more I need to learn. But that might be a psychological phenomenon as much as anything else. There's a, a quote, a quotation, and I'm going to butcher it, I'm sure. So apologies. I'm, I, I'm not even sure I'm going to get the person right. So here it goes. I think it's from Rob Coe, which says something along the lines of, um, if you're not being guided by evidence, then you're being guided by prejudice. That's not the quote. Might not even be Rob <laughs> Coe. So maybe this will be cut. But if it's close enough, then uh, we'll let it go. But uh, the sentiment is one I certainly agree with. I guess the question then is, if research is, is useful, as we seem to agree upon this idea, it ha has, has a part to play. It's not everything, but it has a role to play in informing what we want to achieve in the classroom. What are the limits of it? What, what can't it do? Are there areas perhaps where research is less useful or are there areas where we need to kind of temper our expectations a little? I mean, most of the arguments that we see online stem from the fact that we're operating in this field that is, on some level, an imperfect science. You know, we there's only so much we can really hope to understand. There's enough variation between students to suggest that not 
one approach is going to work in every situation. It's not like medicine where we find out the root cause of something. We identify ways in which that can be treated. And then we treat until better evidence comes about, you know, because I mean, Ben Goldecker was part of the conversation that brought things like research aid into practice. And I think, yeah, that comparison with science is, is, is a pretty powerful one because we, we can, we can never hope to know the one true way to teach. I think the narrative certainly over the last you know decade or so has shifted from best bets to good bets. And I think that's our, that's our, the extent of our limitations. That's the, the boundaries within which we work. We can see, okay, this, this group of studies have been replicated in a range of different scenarios. They have worked with a large number of pupils and we can say with a reasonable amount of certainty that there's a good chance if we try this, it will be effective. What we want as teachers is we want to know for certain. I think what we want as humans is to know, okay, this is the way we teach. And that's when we become married to pedagogy. That's when we become married to strategies. And then that's when we take personal affront to the idea that this might not be the most effective way to do things. You know, I mean, I'm pretty sure everyone who's, you know, regular contributor to the podcast has at some point gone through that shift where they realized that the pedagogy that they were perhaps encouraged to use at the start of their career wasn't necessarily the most cost-effective way to teach. And it takes a big, big shift. I remember reading David Didow's What If Everything in Your Education Was Wrong? And I had to read it almost immediately afterwards again because some of the things in there, I was like, no, this, this is a personal affront to me. You know, Some of the stuff I, I'd been predisposed to, and I was like, okay, okay, I can get on board with these changes. You know, I mean, particularly you know, the, the chapter that Richard wrote about um, assessment and things like that. And I was starting to maybe take a, a different direction there. But some of it was like, oh my goodness, this, this, is, um, this is a personal criticism. I've been doing this for so long. Why is it that, um, why, why is it that this, this, this might not be the best thing? And, and so we need to think about our own disposition to what research suggests, the way it's delivered, and also the limitations in the fact that as a social scientist, the methodologies that are possible and also preferred by researchers are limited by design. And so, for instance, I always talk about um, research into manipulatives. Well, I think by design, samples are kept quite small and studies show the impact over a short period of time. I mean, that, I mean, I think I read somewhere between 68, 75 papers in preparation for that last talk I was doing about manipulatives. And so what does the research tell us? And it came up so much, you know, those things about, you know, and people had intentionally worked with a group of three pupils. That only tells us so much. Really, I prefer massive samples where, okay, this works with lots of people. I mean, I always say I'm jealous of your reading research because it seems a whole lot more clear cut than most other areas. 
And even then, there's still debate within the reading world about how to do things. So I think when we're thinking about the limitations of research, we're thinking about quite a few things that come together to really give us advice. And again, go back to the reasons why we should engage. That advice, then how we, we check how that correlates with our class, with our practice, how easy something is to implement. And then we take it from there. Yeah, I think there are two really in interesting themes that come out from what you say there. The first of which is being able to deal with and expect uncertainty as part of engaging with research and recognizing that more often than not, we're dealing with words like suggests or possibly or maybe. So there's that first part. Um, I think there's a second part where you mentioned in particular about uh, kind of this contextual idea, which is when we say something or we think something works, the appropriate follow up questions are, well, when and uh, where and with whom and uh, compared to what? And I think especially that last question. So often things that are pushed forward as this works are when you dig into the research, often you find that what this means is this works compared to doing nothing or this works compared to something that is demonstrably an effective practice and it hasn't been compared to something else. You know, I'm immediately thinking of things like um, um, reciprocal teaching, reciprocal reading, which has, in, in a lot of cases, hasn't been compared to other things that might allow us to work out exactly what the active ingredients behind this intervention are. I guess a third thing I'd kind of like to pick your brains about is this. Um, I mean, you'll be familiar with the work of Gert Biesta, this idea of, you know, can't base education on evidence. We, what we really need is a values-based way of thinking about education. And um, I read that fairly recently again, and then was directed by a friend to, um, I think it was a, a document put together by Nick Rose for Teach First, called something like evidence-based education or evidence-informed education, whatever it might be, or, or dealing with evidence. And what I loved about it was this: there was this metaphor that he used saying that we can, can think, think of research as providing us with a compass, but it doesn't tell us where to go. You know, it's our values determine where we want to go. And the research then is a compass that kind of allows us to approach that, um, hopefully, uh, more efficiently. I, I felt that when, when reading Biesta, that idea of values versus evidence felt like a bit of a false dichotomy. And I liked the way that uh, Nick Rose engaged with that um, directly. I, I mean, I, I'm sure you've read Biesta. Have you come across um, any of kind of Nick Rose's um, stuff on this, his blogs? Because I was, I feel like it completely passed me by. And recently I've realized it's a bit of a gold mine of stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously I've had the opportunity to read that kind of work over the last couple of years. And my reaction was that although it started strong, the argument fell apart really quite quickly. And we ended up, you know, I was, and perhaps it's my interpretation, but I felt there were quite, um, what, what, what's the name for those, those things? I'm not saying there were straw men in here, but those, those sort of argument, the rhetorical techniques that disguise the the absence of substance. I don't know what what, what would a straw man be. What would um, a non sequitur be? Logical fallacies. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. So there were lots of 
logical fallacies. I don't know whether perhaps they were intentional, perhaps they weren't. Um, I haven't read Nick's work on it, but I have read Nick's work on psychology, a book he wrote with David. Um, and I've always found him to speak really well. I think I made it made, made some of my, my first research ed to, and certainly at, at some teacher development forum things as well, because I think he was involved in that for a while. And you know, I've always found him to be really measured and thorough in his work. Um, and so he'd be someone who I'd look to um, on occasion to uh, for inspiration on matters such as these. But I, I haven't actually read his, his response to or critique of Fiesta's work. But I, you know, I find it, um, I, I wanted to be convinced. You know, I like to read things that I don't agree with. But I find out, you know, yeah, I just well, I was I was dissatisfied. I don't know if that's a fair reflection because obviously on occasion, you know, I've talked about this and and I've sort of expressed my disappointment. But you see, you were almost more positive about some of the arguments that were being made. I don't know, is that a fair interpretation of our conversations? Um, I, th- I possibly. I struggle to get past. I think what he describes as like the epistemological weakness. In effect, there's this whole, there's this like three arguments he lays out, um, and one of them says, in effect, that the nature of science means that there's always a level of uncertainty, and thus this is this great big flaw that runs through the idea of using research in education. Maybe that's a simplistic interpretation of what he's saying, but I've read it a few times and I don't think it necessarily is. And it seems like the oddest thing in the world to say in the middle of a research paper, you know what? Science can't give us absolute truth as if that's something that is like a new thought or that that kind of invalidates, um, you know, uh, empirical methods, but still, um, I, I wouldn't say I'm that sympathetic to the argument, but that said, I do like the I do lo- uh, like the discussion of values within it, um, not least because it directed me towards those who um, are able to kind of engage with that argument and take us a bit further on, as I've discussed before. Um, but yeah, to anyone listening, if you're like me, and for some unknown reason, you're only coming to stuff on twitter relatively recently uh, yeah nick rose's blogs go back to them they are it's a gold mine i think if we go back to the original question chris yeah sure. i think i think one thing research evidence can very quickly and conclusively show us is when there's an absence of evidence for claims being made it's almost easier to prove or disprove something than it is to say why something works or the, or the likelihood that something will work which is what makes it a whole lot more baffling as to why some of the things that were happening when i started teaching were allowed to happen because it just took a little peek under the carpet to see the complete absence of any um any sort of evidence base and that led to teachers time being wasted um, which is another reason why we should probably engage with the with the research yeah, along those lines, there's a an interesting um, comparison of two. I think it's a comparison of two meta analyses relating to growth mindset that I've that seems to have just landed on Twitter. I mean, that it seems to vacillate between two positions, but um, generally the discourse on things like growth mindset. But it suffices to say that that is definitely one of those things that I was very much bought into at the start of my career. Do think that potentially aspects of it still have value there are things in there that i will do regardless because 
unless shown definitively that this is a bad idea, it's stuff that just seems to make common sense in terms of relationship building and the setting of expectations. But um, it does seem to be one of these areas where there was a lot of certainty within the education profession and now understandably so there isn't. And that's before we get into the much more famous, like clear cut stuff that we can talk about with regards to, you know, learning styles, all of that stuff that ends up being um, rightly hammered by people who are interested in evidence um, within education. So we've talked about why it's important, what perhaps potentially are the limits of research. What, do you would, what would you say are the current barriers that um, are in place that prevent the profession perhaps from being a bit more research informed? You mentioned at, start, at, at the start of this episode, a statistic relating to the number of people who who do and don't potentially read within education. So what do you think are the barriers that are preventing that kind of engagement? I think on one level, you know, we always start every episode talking about how time poor teachers are. Time is a massive barrier. You know, there are plenty of teachers who would love to read more, would love to engage with research, but have to prioritize other things. And sometimes those other things are your family. I mean, I think I've certainly read less since the kids came along. I mean, I've, tried, I've certainly continued to read, but I remember how um, voraciously I used to read, um, you know, when I didn't have as many home responsibilities. But then my whole attitude to my, how I spend my time out of school shifted at the same time, you know. So, But I, I think there are lots of teachers who want to read. But they, they, they can't find the time. I mean, a lot of my advice, you know, that we come to will, will be about, well, how can we make the most of every moment? Um, but I think time is a barrier. I think the, it's not established that this is something we should do. And I think perhaps teachers coming through now, going through the early career framework, are being encouraged to read both accessible and rigorous, robust research articles. And so that might allow them to engage more readily because they won't have had this big gap between university and then in the classroom, spend five years getting the hang of the classroom. And then when you haven't got that habit, so you're not going to start it up again unless you get something to kickstart it you know and i know i know i know we've got listeners who have kickstarted their reading again because of things like what you're reading more and stuff so it is possible but i think once you're in a routine as a teacher and you've got this perception of what the role of a teacher is and what you're you're there for if that doesn't involve engaging with academic research then it's going to be quite difficult to shift that so I think those are probably the two big things, but I also think that the, you know, and we've, we've spoken about it lots and lots of times before, the actual, is it a grammatical barrier? The way the papers are written, you know, you've got this wall put up by the parameters of the field, the expectations on how an academic paper should be written that prevent teachers from engagement. I mean, I think we, we live in this almost golden age where we can access people's thoughts on research better than we've ever been able to before. And 
but we should be able to pick up a paper as people who've been through university for three, possibly four years and reach this level of um, academic, I don't know, reach this academic standard, so to speak, we should be able to expect to pick up um, any article and understand it, but that's not the case. So it's almost like even if you get past the first two barriers, you can sometimes find yourself with a 32-page document going, why did I bother? You know, and then it goes back in the in the drawer or the, the tab gets closed and, you know, you tried, but this is not for me kind of thing, you know? So I think th those are the three main ones for me. Um, it's dispositions, it's capacity, and it's the barriers inherent within the, the form of the, of the field itself. I'm particularly interested in the third of those because I think it, it's fair to say that any body of research is going to rely upon a certain amount of abstruse vocabulary. It's going to say, you know, I, I don't want, if I'm reading a paper on reading fluency, necessarily to have automaticity described in excessive detail. I don't necessarily need everything to be simplified back to a base level. And often it means that in order to access a lot of reading research or research more generally, you need a bit of an on-ramp. You need to get used to certain language that you're going to see so that when you start to see see it in um in a more complicated bit of a bit of language you can start to pick it apart more more easily so while I, I while i think there is um some need for abstruse language i've definitely read lots of reading research where i've thought this has been badly written and this has been unnecessarily written uh, abstruse in its choice of, of vocabulary. And I guess there is no reason for us to assume that those that study education, study learning are, are going to be good writers. That doesn't, that, that might not be what happens. You know, they, they might not have necessarily have the skills to communicate clearly and effectively. I would say the other thing that kind of gets, got in the way for me when I first started reading research was I looked at, I remember looking at methods within papers and just being completely overwhelmed. I mean, I've, I've read a fair amount of research and yet, brutally honest, most papers, when I get to the methods part, there'll be plenty of stuff that I still have no idea about, just does not make any sense to me. And so what I'm really doing in a lot of cases, rather than deeply understanding exactly how a, a particular paper works in terms of its statistical analysis what i'm doing over time is aggregating what i'm i'm kind of aggregating what i'm learning and then where i find patterns and it's going to sound like a bit of a you know a logical fallacy in itself where i see people who i respect and who i know know a great deal about this field also saying well yeah this makes sense this aligns with what we've seen before i start to you know pay it a bit more attention um, in the end, we have to, it goes back to that point of not, um, of dealing with uncertainty, but in a, in a slightly different way. I think we have to deal with being a bit confused and being a bit lost for a while at least, and uh, leaning into that with, with research. But yeah, the, the way it's written is often one of the, one of the key barriers. In terms of, you say, disposition, I... I found for a while when I first started reading research and getting into podcasts and other bits and pieces that, you know, I found interesting. 
that those who had been in the profession for a considerable period of time and who hadn't engaged with that stuff occasionally seemed to be a bit defensive when this stuff was discussed, which kind of makes sense. If you're trying to say that this might be an important idea and they've been teaching for 30 years and they've not engaged with it at all, that's going to hit at their sense of, you know, self-esteem. But would you say at all that there is reluctance to read within the profession sometimes and particularly with it perhaps within the primary profession because there are lots of people who got into teaching not with that in that frame of mind you know they're not thinking of it as this is a job that will exercise me intellectually in that way it will exercise me intellectually in a load of different ways but not in that particular way that I left behind at university do you sense that at all within the, within the profession or am I way off base I think you're on to something I mean I, I I recognize what you're describing I'm not sure I could comment as to the the frequency with, with which you might encounter that that disposition or that um, that approach or attitude but I know that people get into teaching for many different reasons you know predominantly to work with children, to help children. And then when you look then at the, perhaps the, the ideological leanings of, of, of teachers, then that might change, you know, certainly, particularly in primary. And, you know, the child first experiential based sort of ideology is probably the predominant, the prevailing ideology i would imagine you know it, it certainly feels like when we discuss the things we discuss we are far from in the in the majority and you know almost adopting this minority position that we're trying to despise to other people if that makes sense so so i yeah this is a, a long and clunky way of saying i think i think i think you're correct chris i think it comes down to how we view the purpose and the motivation behind becoming a teacher, you know, because it, it might be that uh, there are many, many other facets of our role that people find more important. And it's not for me to say whether they're right or wrong, just that I wouldn't necessarily agree. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's a particularly nuanced and fair way to describe it. talked about the barriers i guess that directly leads us to another question which is well what do you think that school leaders can do to support their teachers in engaging with research the first thing they have to do is acknowledge that this is something that's worthwhile doing because you're going to need to dedicate reasonably significant resources if you want it to become prevalent across your school and I think, you know, this leads directly to how we encourage pupil behavior in the classroom. You know, we think about what Pep says about things like social norms. Essentially, if you're a school leader and you want your teachers to engage with research, you need to make it the social norm. And you need to, at the very least, get the critical mass into a position where they view this as something of value. You know, so the head teacher themselves need to value it, and then that needs to trickle down 
to teachers. Now, if if time is a barrier, then you need as head teacher, school leader, you need to make a reasonable amount of time available, perhaps guided, perhaps unguided, perhaps a combination of both, where people can meaningfully engage with research. So for instance, I, I'm talking about how I used to read when the 20 minutes when my computer was loading up, you know, and everyone laughs because computers take a long time to load up in schools. But when school leaders take this seriously, you provide opportunities. Now, it might be that the first 15 minutes of a staff meeting, and there are arguments as to whether or not this is good use of staff meeting time, but those first 15 minutes are there to perhaps read a shared paper, perhaps to um, do some independent reading, or maybe you've got a project you're looking at over the course of a year. But you, you might choose, okay, 15 minutes a week, that's still going to be a couple of hours more than if that time isn't available. It might be that your workload expectations are such that reading research is more than possible within the working day. You know, I'm a big advocate for using school time for improving your knowledge of school matters. You know, I mean, I enjoy reading this kind of thing. I'll read it at nighttime. I'll read it when I wake up in the morning. But when I have the opportunity, I will be reading in school. Um, and so I think considering, you know, when, when, when works for us, what pressures can we remove from our, from our teachers? Because then they've got the opportunity. In terms of social norms, I think the provision of, I don't know, it, it, would it just come down to the provision? I mean, if I think about my own experience, went into a school in 2017, the only constant was change. Teachers weren't necessarily engaged with their practice because they had so many other things on their plate. Now, the school leaders addressed that, but they also asked me to encourage people, you know, to make it the norm that, that teachers engage in research. And so I would do things like I would choose a paper every week and I would leave it in the staff room, you know, multiple copies. And um, so that here's something I think is worth reading, you know, not everybody did but one or two people would. I would encourage conversations in the staff room. I would have books about education in the staff room. People would sign in and out. You know, I mean, lots of people do those, those libraries. Um, but as a school leader, I would also ask the teachers about their reading experience. Oh, what did you think of that chapter? And um, I'm pretty sure I've spoken about Jack Harker before coming back to me with things he read in I Wish I Taught Maths that disagreed with what I was saying to him. And then he was challenging me. And that's brilliant because he has challenged me based on his reading, you know? And so once we've given the, once we've given the time, once we've given the opportunity, I think that we then need to give the material and we need to make engaging with that material normal. So if that's things like being caught reading and if it's things like, you know, conversations about the essence of a paper, about the, um, the themes, how a paper relates to school. And then, Encouraging that within our, within the sort of staff run CPD, you then start to tie everything together. Because if people see that kind of reading research directly linked with their roles, then they, they get to a point where actually this might be beneficial both for my career, but also for my pupils. Um, and I remember um, the Senko at that school used to say, love your CPD, so much theory at the start. And I would always start with the why. 
And here's, you know, because I, I wanted people to challenge my thinking. So if here's here's my basis for this um, the CPD. I'm open to have my mind changed, but this is where we're going from. And I think that kind of approach where we outline our sources encourages other people to do the same too. And I think they're in the position now where that's the norm, but it starts with one or two people. And then when people, other people see the conversations they want or hear the conversations in the staff room, they then think, well, maybe, maybe I'll get involved in this. And then obviously as you bring new teachers in and they see so many other people engaging, well, then you, you get to that point where you've got critical mass um, and you get to the point where this is just something we do here, which is, you know, perhaps talks about with behavior in class. You want to be seeing that, you know, it is good, inherently good to do homework. This is something this class does. Um, you know, I hope I'm not misquoting him. Um, but that's one of the things that stood out whenever I spoke to him on the podcast. And thinking about, well, what, what is it we can do to get to that point? Now, I've given some pretty specific examples, but I think any of the research, any of the guidance on how we can influence social norms probably applies, and we can take those and we can place them into um, this situation. I particularly like what you said there about your professional development starting with a discussion of the research, but also theory. That's I, I, was, I particularly picked up on that word because one thing... I almost want to say to school leaders that they really shouldn't do, I think, if they want to um, engage people, get people more engaged with research is something I've seen done by others. You haven't done it here at all. You've done quite the opposite. Um, but something I've seen done by others, which is to say, we do this because research says it works or research says this. They use it uh, right, research as a trump card in arguments to kind of like shut down discussion which is kind of the opposite of what you're doing you're using it as a way to outline your theory behind why something might work I mean I'm someone who's quite who spends a little bit of my career going around to schools and other places talking about the evidence base related to um, different aspects of reading and yet if someone then says to me okay but why should we do this or why do you think this is a good idea I'm not then talking about, you know, effect sizes. I'm talking about mechanisms, I'm talking about the theory behind why something might work. It's that that changes minds. And yes, that is often buttressed by a body of empirical research that is where that theory comes from. But it's the theory about why this stuff works that um, matters. I'd say one other thing that I think school leaders, again, this is more what they shouldn't do, is um, making stuff a fad. So if you are going to do something related to a bit of research, if you're going to implement something, I think if you then don't follow up on it and it just becomes something that that school did for a few months and then forgot about, I think that's a way to understandably build cynicism within the profession about research. And I think there is a lot of, again, understandable cynicism related to research because I've, you know, I've lost track of the number of secondary teachers I've spoken to who will say things like, oh, yeah, we were introduced to I don't know, Rosenshine's principles of instruction. That was a, the thing we did for three months or for six months. And then we moved on. And at the time that was described as this is research. It's a good idea because research. So, um, yeah, another thing not to do. Try and avoid fads tr and try to avoid using just the idea of research as some kind of trump card 
um, in arguments about pedagogy. In the end, you are coming back to a discussion of theory, of your ideas about how learning works in a specific situation. Yeah, I mean, the research says is, is generally a red flag in, in arguments of, of pedagogy and arguments about research and things. And that's when you know, you know, there's a high likelihood this person hasn't necessarily engaged with the research. And certainly whenever you're having this conversation with someone, Chris, then in the same level of depth that, uh, that you will have, have gone to to make sure you've read, you know, even all the appendices and things out there. Um, I mean, you were on Brendan Lee's podcast recently. When Brendan and I spoke, he spent a lot of time t- discussing how teacher development is about behavior change and habit formation. And obviously, if something's a fad, well, then you haven't got to the point where you have instigated behavioral change. You know, you haven't made a part of what it is to be a teacher in your school. And so I think, you know, all that sort of rich, um, you know, the, the sort of the canon on how we can improve our teachers has certainly come to the fore in recent years, supports that idea of avoiding fad making and actually what is it we can do to make our changes to our practice meaningful and robust? You know, I always talk about how essentially you want to make yourself redundant because the teachers are so self-sufficient and so effective that you're no longer necessary. And that's in that t- in that school improvement or teacher improvement situation. Um, so I think, I think very important point and, and sort of aligned with how many schools are developing their working practices and, and seeing things as a five-year, 10-year journey, as opposed to, like you say, six months. Let's do Rose and Shine for six months. That's not going to work. So we've talked about the role of school leaders in promoting um, engagement with research. Let's assume that a listener might be a teacher who is in a school where this isn't there that support perhaps isn't there at the moment what advice would you give to an individual teacher in that situation who was keen to begin engaging with research perhaps someone who was enthused and but didn't have didn't know where to begin um any advice any tips well obviously listen to this podcast i think it's a a good gateway drug naturally (laughs) of course of course um because lots of the lots of the fantastic guests we've had over the the years have um used quite seminal papers to begin their responses to the various questions that i've asked them so that you know it doesn't just have to be this podcast you know there are lots of other podcasts with us in a similar vein obviously you know you've got um the mr barton maths podcast and, and tips for teachers and um, you know craig's output encouraged me to engage more meaningfully and he also suggested the types of things that I, I might be better reading rather than reading about hats and things that got there and so you know listen to that listen to the e triple r and you know i'm sure there are, there are lots brendan you know i think brendan's you know all about um development of teacher knowledge and things you know I, i'll feel bad because i haven't listed made a massive list and um, so maybe that's one for the website where i put up my um, podcasts that have inspired me because I, I listen to hundreds of podcasts a month and you know maybe three or four days sometimes and I'm always trying to find out more but also because I can typically work while I'm listening to podcasts you know particularly on tasks that don't 
require my full attention. Um, you know, I don't, I, when I have to commute, I'll typically have two or three downloaded or a long one, you know, and I, I enjoy long form podcasts. Um, and I think that's a really good way to get into things. Like I said, we're, you know, this golden age of accessibility. So look for people who have gone to great lengths to explain research to teachers. You know, you mentioned um, Professor Coe, who, you know, over, you know, certainly the last 10, 15, 20 years has gone to great lengths to try and make the dense and seemingly impenetrable pretty accessible and clear for teachers. You know, obviously, um, the, the stuff he wrote and spoke about with regards to lesson observations, you know, that's taking quite a complex field and making it pretty clear. Here are your best bets. Here are your good bets for this. So trying to identify those people. You know, Tom Sharrington for a long time has done the same thing with his, with his writing and mentioned David Daidai. You know, Pepsi's evidence snacks. You know, they're fantastic because Pepsi breaks down ideas um, on a Thursday morning. Don't know if he's stopping for the summer. Um, but there was certainly one this morning in my inbox. And, you know, anyone who's out there trying to make distill research for us, you know, hunt them out, you know, and sort of, you know, and then look at who they're listening to or who they're reading, you know, who they're following, engaging with on Twitter. Um, and then bit by bit developing that network of people that you can you feel you can trust because we can never you know we can never fully trust online persona um 100 but you can almost put some of your eggs in a few different baskets and, and at, at the the very least you you'll have started to engage with the with the subject matter in a little bit more depth even if it turns out that um you might have gone you you might go up a few garden paths before finding you know um i don't know I don't know what the what you what you'd find before finding sort of the you know finding your niche. I don't know. Um. So yeah. So what we got? We got podcasts. We've got trusted Sherpa. Um. That we could follow, and I think there are certain papers that we can start with. Certain papers that allow us access to complex material but the authors have intentionally written in an accessible way. For instance, when Dan Willingham writes, it's extremely accessible. When Paul Kirshner writes, it's extremely accessible. I mean, I think, you know, the paper on while minimally guided instruction doesn't work, it's probably one of the best written papers I've ever read. You know, eat right from the off, establish what it is to write about, and then it's clear, clear, clear the whole way through. Um, and... That could be one of those watershed moments for people where they, you know, people have talked about how it was their thunderbolt where it sort of took the scales in their eyes. But it's a really good example of a paper that's really well written and it needed to be really well written because it flew in the face of the prevailing narrative at the time and probably the prevailing narrative now to some extent. Um, and so that that's what I would do. I mean, that's, that's essentially what I did, you know, looked at what other people were doing, you know, and then bit by bit, my outlook on teaching changed based on that reading. You know, this stuff doesn't change overnight, doesn't happen overnight, but it gradually becomes a part of how you behave 
you know, as, as a person. Um, so I think that that would be my advice. I think expect it to happen over, you know, but, you know, one of those thresholds where you go through and you can't remember when you didn't engage with this stuff. But at some point you have to start. And I think there are, those are the three ways I would do it. I think on the thinkingdeeply.info website, I've got the references from thinking deeply about primary mathematics, certainly the references that are easily accessible online. If anyone's looking for accessible stuff on there, I would check that out because it's got things like um, papers by Matthew Kraft and, you know, the one on teacher development, that kind of stuff. All, all papers that people can engage with in a meaningful way with little to no background knowledge because, they're, you know, I haven't got any papers on there that are dense to the point of impenetrability. Yeah, I like the point about those uh, Sherpas in particular. A couple of names that immediately jumped to mind there. Um, the likes of Sarah Cottingham on Twitter, um, Ephrat First. Um, if you're interested in reading, Professor Timothy Shanahan, uh, Pamela Snow. And in both of those cases, I think what's interesting there is while those are both people with their names behind plenty of bona fide research, a great jumping off point into their work are the blogs that they write. So the Snow Report and uh, Shanahan on Literacy are you know great places to begin. And the same with um, Sarah Cottingham, Ephrat First, I believe. I know Sarah blogs, I believe Ephrat First does as well. There are there are others that, uh, of, of course, we can name, but don't be afraid to start with blogs and, and dare I say, books that are intentionally placed to summarise this stuff. So um, you mentioned Paul Kirshner. Um, so I think it's is it Kirshner and Hendricks' book, How Learning Happens, is a nice place to start if you're looking for a jumping off point for, you know, what papers might interest me. I mean, the nature of any... Um, collection of research papers is it's going to be somewhat related to the interests and biases of whoever is writing the book that's inevitable but as a jumping off point it's absolutely I, I loved it it's absolutely terrific I've not actually got around to buying and then reading the follow-up I think is it how, how teaching happens like the red one I need to um, given how much I enjoyed how learning happens but I think there are you know that if you ask around and say look I'm interested you're on Twitter perhaps and say look I'm interested in this subject and I want to just dive in you know where do I begin usually you won't um it won't be too long before someone suggests something that is a you know a gentle introduction to the key issues in the way that something like ending the reading wars is for reading research um so yeah I think lots of uh, good advice from you all around there Kira I mean there are there are two books that I read about the actual I don't know, not about the actual craft of engaging with research, but you've got Dan Williams' lesser spoken about book, which is um, When Can We Trust the Experts? And it's a lot like um, Bengal Digger's Bad Science, you know, and Tom Bennett has a book called Teacher Proof, where he goes through some of the fads that we've experienced and how they don't stack up against the evidence, things like brain gym, that kind of thing. So those, those two books, if we're looking at, you know, how do we, and then even Bad Science itself, is, is invaluable for teachers. You know, I must have read that three or four times. Enjoyable read, but also in terms of changing your outlook on life, you know, it was one of the books that, you know, I was like, whoa. Well, the one downside to uh, Bad Science by Ben Goldacre is that it tempts you to read the follow-up with Bad Pharma, which is nowhere near as accessible or um, as enjoyable a read. I mean, still interesting stuff, but ugh, 
it, that is a real trudge in comparison. Sorry, Ben, if you're listening, which is almost certainly not the case. I guess one final thing to point out, and I know it can be a little controversial, is the value of organisations that do attempt to collate and communicate research like the EEF. There are obviously um, going to be flaws that come about when you take complex areas of research and try to distill them in an accessible fashion. I mean, you and I... (laughs) having attempted to do that in certain ways over the years and within this podcast are aware, um, I think, of the pitfalls. But with that caveat aside, I do think that a lot of the EEF guidance reports are a good place to start on things like literacy and um, in other areas. So, yeah, consider them as a jumping off point. And once again, as I guess it's a bit of a theme, be prepared to deal with a little bit of uncertainty. Be prepared to treat anything you read or anything you hear with um, a sensible touch of skepticism as makes sense when we're talking about engaging with empirical research. Yeah, and I think that that feeds back into what you're saying about methodology and and methods in particular, and the, the kind of mathematics that can appear. I remember it must have been 2017, 2018 Research Ed National Conference. And we had a professor from University of Durham, which is obviously where Rob Coe works and teaches. And he was saying that he had some serious reservations about how effect sizes are measured. And these are obviously their colleagues and they're talking about, you know, they're having this argument or conversation every day. But effect sizes is something that lots of schools have bet the house on in terms of, you know, the work of John Hattie and things like that there. But on some level, we have to accept that we're, you know, we, we do not have the, the time to become mathematical analysts, you know, and we have to trust. Like you're talking about the EF. So if you go to the Education Endowment Foundation's website and you the, the, the more you engage with that stuff, there's an, there's an equivalent in America, the What Works Clearinghouse. The more you engage with research, the more you read, the easier it is to smell a rat and think, oh, hold on a second. I've read substantially about this in other places. This brief summary doesn't match up with my interpretation. But that only comes through, you know, months and months and years and years of reading. But it does get easier, I think. So, so you know, although we will never, you know, in most instances, if not all, really have a grasp on the, the the mathematics in many, many research studies, we can train ourselves to, like you say, spot patterns in the research. And when you find an outlier, it could be that there's an issue with the body of research in general. And this outlier is actually showing you something that might illuminate the truth or as close to truth as we can get or it might be that there's something in the outlier that has prevented it from giving the you know similar result to comparable papers i don't know so yeah don't stress about not understanding the maths or the numbers and just practice makes more efficient detective work i think yeah and along along those lines don't be afraid occasionally just to engage with 
the abstract, brief look at the methods, onto the you know discussion. If that's you know if it's a paper where you don't think you know you need to spend that much time on other bits and pieces, or equally, don't be afraid to. If you want to learn more about a subject, find a paper that is well written and look at the introduction to get an overview of that subject and say, you know what, I'm not actually interested in what this paper is talking about beyond that. I'm, you know, the introduction, this well written overview of where the rest of the field stands at this point is what I was after. You don't have to read research in the same way that you might read a novel where you're like, I, I, I need to engage with every sentence of this. It doesn't always have to be that way. I mean, generally, it's a good thing to do if it's a piece of evidence that, or a piece of research you're interested in to read the whole thing. But you can dip into stuff. You can get a feel for um, certain ideas sometimes without having to read something completely comprehensively. All that said, um, it's been a pleasure to have the chance to ask you questions on this subject, Kieran, and to, I hope, build on what you had to say occasionally. Um, so I'll hand back to you to, you know, <laughs> not sure how to do that transfer. No, I think you were, I think you were fine up until the point where you said you didn't know how to do it. So I, I'll just cut fine, that out. Cut that out then. Yep, that's grand. If the bit before that vaguely made sense, then happy days. No, it's been, it, it's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, I... Thursday night, end of the academic year. Would my answers be different or more eloquent uh, at a different point? Perhaps. But hopefully, if any of our listeners are keen to get engaged or have colleagues who they would like to get engaged with, with research, then I think um, hopefully this will have been helpful. I mean, obviously, we go to quite a few research eds across the year. You know, sometimes they're quite... Um, a good way to dip your toe in the water, you know, make some friends and then see where it goes in there. I mean, at the very least, you'll be surrounded by like-minded people and you won't, um, you'll, you'll wear your nerd badge as a, as a badge of honor. Um, and I'm sure we'll come back to this again. I know this, I think this was a request on Discord from Tom Brassington, perhaps. Um, so I hope this has met his, his brief. All I have to do is say thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks for having me on again. And everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening.